that's what we were discussing in our intro today. But I have to digress as we are on Freightonomics. And today, Anthony Smith. Yeah. We have a lot to cover. We got a lot going on. Obviously, the coronavirus, COVID-19, whatever you want to call it, uh, still present in today's world. And, you know, it has had a notable impact on everything. Uh, but we're, we had our first earnings release <clears throat> or our most significant earnings release. A little company? Yeah. A little company called JB Hunt came out yesterday. May have heard of them. Uh, we're going to break those down, uh, and talk about what that means. Uh, you know, what, how much should we take moving forward of what they said, what they're, uh, you know, some of these, these were fairly positive earnings. So we're going to break that down. We're, we also have a few economic releases. Is that correct, Anthony? Smith? That is correct. Some um, significant ones. Long awaited releases. I mean, I've been trying to give my best forecast and outlook. I mean, we talk about jobless claims, which is a very significant release that we talk about every Thursday once those numbers come out, even before the corona ramp up. Um, but we finally have some March numbers for retail sales and industrial production. So it's going to be very telling, and it is very telling for the state of the economy. Not many surprises as what we were expecting. I mean, what we've been expecting and what we've seen in the, in the truckload data set. So, yeah, but we'll get all we'll get into that stuff. Yeah, so, yeah, we're going to talk about that, and we also are going to break down, you know, obviously the Rona <laughs> yeah. itself, uh, talk about what's going on there, but we had a CAS. Uh, those of you that are familiar with CAS, we had the, their release uh, talking about, you know, trucking rates, trucking volumes. They represent roughly $50 billion of freight spend, uh, including intermodal rail volumes, as well as truckload and LTL, so we'll we'll break that down in a little bit of detail as well, so... Without further ado, let's hit up today's top stories. Let's do it. So I think most the, the most prevalent story to me as we sit here and we're watching the news outlets and everything is there seems to be a significant shift in sentiment on, you know, whether or not to open up the economy. Where Did we're you talk- just say sentiment? Sentiment. Oh, yeah, feelings. Wow. It's all I've got right now. I don't nice. have I don't have any facts because they refuse to give me any, but... You know, we're, we're talking, there's obviously a heated political debate and we're not, we're going to stay away from that. <laughs> yeah. We're not medical professionals nor, uh, you know, political leadership in this country. Uh, whether you think we should open or should not open, that is a different discussion entirely. But they are at least now where we are seeing a lot more signs that, you know, we are progressing towards a reopening of the economy where they are developing plans to reopen the economy. Uh, let people, you know, make their own decisions whether or not they need to go back to the office, go back to work, restaurants, etc. Can again on their own choosing act on their own discretion whether or not they need to open. Uh, but that also has a big impact to freight. I mean, you have all these different sectors in the service economy. You know, have orthodontists. Yeah. Uh, you have you know other healthcare professions that aren't elected that are elective, uh, so to say. Uh, that have been shut down for the right. last month and month and a half or so. And then, you know, all these other sectors that you don't really think about, you're thinking restaurants, you're thinking tourism, but there's all these other downstream, upstream effects of these sectors being shut down. You have marketing, all this other stuff that just, it's, it, it's in freight and you don't really think about it directly, but it is a thing that's happening. So, you know, we're looking at at least a May 1st minimum, I believe, from what I've read heard seen uh so far which you know some people are obviously against because they think we should be shut down for longer to make sure that we are through or over the hump um and again 
not medical debate, <laughs> yeah. uh, whether or not you believe the, uh, the stats are overwhelming or underwhelming, that's your own opinion. But if we do see the, the economy open back up at early, or as early as May 1st, I personally, Anthony Smith, don't think that we're going to see things turn on right away. Do you? Absolutely not. Absolutely yeah. not. Um, <laughs> when we when we're talking about the economy restarting, of course, there's a there's an entire team around this uh, there that are that's kind of mitigating or really kind of trying to figure out how to and how the best way to restart the economy. Unfortunately, none of those people on that team are economists, which is kind of weird, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> um, but when we're looking at restarting the economy, it's definitely going to not come on all at once. And it's likely to happen in waves, and not just in waves, but regionally. I mean, when we're looking at areas that have been impacted more than others, we talk about all the time, New York, uh, Florida, Washington State. These areas are going to be much more slower to come online. And when we're looking at different industries that are going to get kickstarted first, it's more likely that we're going to see uh, perhaps some construction activity. Um, if we ever get anything with infrastructure kind of going, if we have anything that's going to incentivize manufacturing, that's going to be some of the ways that I think we start to see first before we get into um, some of the consumer facing side of things. I mean, we can still telecommute you and I um, to an extent. Many sort of, of you that are watching <laughs> are, can, can also somewhat uh, telecommute. And so those individuals might be a little bit uh, more hesitant before we kind of start getting into large scale social settings. And so when we're looking at restarting the economy, we're looking at more of those infrastructure type businesses that are manufacturing goods. Um, of course, when I talk about manufacturing all the time, I'm always thinking that um, there might need to be some type of incentive put in place, maybe some type of uh, push or a nudge, if you will, for businesses to start manufacturing and feeling uh, confident to make these investments in capital goods and expenditures and things like that to really kind of spur business to business activity. Yeah, the company that we're about to talk about here in a few minutes, J.B. Hunt, uh, actually talked about how they had reduced their CapEx budget uh, for the year, uh, bringing it down about $100 million, I believe, in CapEx, which isn't, for them, isn't a huge amount, but it's it's a big amount of money. I mean, and especially as if you apply that to the rest of the country, uh, people are pulling back on their capital expenditure budgets uh, for the year. That means that's going to have a downwind effect, even as the economy turns back on, uh, you know, May, June, July, we're probably still going to feel these impacts for the next 12 months or so in terms yeah. of industrial production numbers yeah. and, and all these other manufacturing numbers that we're going to see. So uh, that has yet to be seen. But again, people are, you know, obviously starting to th at least think about coming back online, coming back to work. Right. We're seeing it in the news. We're seeing it in the headlines. Uh, I think that's a good sign uh, for things to come. At least we, we obviously need to talk about that regardless of whether or not you feel like it should be in 12 months or in two weeks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I mean, also, side note, almost forgot to mention that, of course, when I'm looking at this laptop here, I am also looking at all of you all on Instagram. I'm not Instagram. LinkedIn. We're on LinkedIn. <laughs> LinkedIn. We don't stream on Instagram. On LinkedIn. Um, we're streaming difficult. right now. That's that's next level. Yeah. But um, <laughs> we're streaming right now on LinkedIn. And so I'm looking at these comments. Of course, I see Clarence Knight talking about when will we get back to work. Um, Timothy Dooner calling me out right now saying... Anthony Smith fact, his water bottle is not actually made of wood. Okay, no one needed to know that. Ooh, um, ouch. Getting called uh, yeah, out early. Clarence Knight saying rates are too low to move anything. Um, that's some, one of that's the, a great point. Yeah. And we're going we're gonna to dive into that here in just a second. So without further ado, Anthony Smith, yeah. let's get going with, uh, you know, 
the top stories of the day. We we covered the Rona uh, to a point. We right. obviously can cover it only as much as we can. You guys can watch your your Fox News, MSNBC, CNN, whatever you choose to get uh, more information on that. But also you can tune in on Tuesdays and Thursdays here if you're really looking for a transportation-specific uh, type of broadcast, the coronavirus update here hosted by... Well, right now, Kevin Hill and Michael Vincent, but also, also Timothy Dooner. He, uh, he pulls a lot of the operations behind the scenes. He's, he's behind the scenes still, even though he may not be on camera as much. Uh, he's still, uh, you know, generating a lot of that research and detail. So if you are looking for a more specific coronavirus-style uh, broadcast information update, we're doing it every Tuesday, Thursday. You and myself are on those shows, Yeah, uh, you know, here at noon uh, at Eastern Time in, uh, in Chattanooga. So let's digress a little bit as much as we can. As much as we can. We can't digress entirely because the next thing that we have up, Morgan Stanley came out with a survey. And they've been doing this survey for the last couple of weeks asking transportation executives and companies, management in those type of businesses, how they are feeling the impacts, what they expect to feel uh, with the coronavirus, COVID-19, you know, right now and moving forward. And we have had some positive news, Anthony. Yeah. So That's according a, to the survey conducted by Morgan Stanley, Ravi Shanker, of course, the, uh, the lead on this, he, uh, he states that 74% of people think that there will be a medium to high impact on their business in the next three months. Now, that's, that's still a pretty high number. So three-fourths of the country, transportation executives, you know, et cetera, think there's still going to be a medium to high impact on their business here in the next three months. I don't think that that's an unreasonable expectation. The good in any direction? <laughs> it's yeah that it's not stated <laughs> okay, okay i think most people would assume that this is a negative impact to their business in gotcha. some regard most of it at least maybe not all of it uh, but two weeks ago when they did this survey 80 percent thought that so we've seen a six percent decline uh in the sentiment and the negative sentiment or whatever sentiment you feel yeah uh, that this means. So they think wow. that we, we are seeing some at least feelings change on the subject of the coronavirus and the COVID outbreak. So that why that's important to, to me. Yeah. Maybe not to you because you're concerned with their feelings. I am very, I mean, I never thought I'd see the day where you open up a story with sentiment. I don't, I'm not, I'm not, the only reason that I am concerned about their feelings in this case is because it may impact their actual behavior. Uh, would you think of that? Look yeah. At, look at that. Yeah. So as, as people are becoming a little bit less pessimistic about this environment, that means that they are more prone to spend money, start changing their behavior towards a more optimistic outlook saying like, I'm going to invest in here. I'm going to grow here. I'm going to start doing different things. Six percent more people than we had last week. That to me feels pretty good. Yeah, and I don't like to use the word feels. Uh, you did. Yeah. <laughs> you, you did. You, you covered that segment very well. Yeah. By the way. Yeah. Should feel good about that. <laughs> so, and again, uh, you know, keeping with the survey, just to you know tie this together. So two weeks ago, um, you know, we actually had people were feeling like they were feeling this impact of the COVID outbreak significantly more. There's still people that are feeling that same amount. So they're still, they still feel like we are in this, in the midst of it, but their forward looking outlook is much more positive. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Oh, good to know. And, uh, we have some more comments coming in. I mean, let's see, we have Joe Berner. He says, I can walk three blocks in any direction from Times Square and find empty derelict blocks. We, we're already in a deep recession, just propped up by cheap credit. 
Oh, look at that. Good Joe go. I mean, we we did just have, I think, the Empire State Index was released today for April. I think I yep. saw a reading of like negative 70 some odd percent. So it's not good. Definitely the New York region and uh, the, the area around surrounding area has been hit very hard, very severe. Well, that's I mean, I mean, that's kind of the epicenter of economic activity yeah. in the United States. <laughs> yeah. We also have Paul Sabarowski. I think I may have said that right. Um, based on how China went, I am thinking May 15th may be a good target to start to reopen. So Paul feeling feeling decent about a May uh, reopen so date. May 15th? Um, uh, Peter Anderson saying, how about using employer data reported for absenteeism for sickness during flu seasons as a means for assessing how safe it is to come back to work? I love it. So I love using data. Yeah. Well done. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> You've made a friend. Yes. Um, yes. I love I love any kind of data you can use to make decisions. Uh, you know, a lot of what is floating around right now is conjecture and it's not it's not the way that I like to make decisions. Obviously, we did not have a lot of information in the early stages of this. China, as we have discussed, not the more most forthcoming or reliable source of information. <laughs> Would you think what? <laughs> Which <laughs> you gotta be kidding me. Again, I'll let everyone else make their own opinion on what they feel about that. But, you know, it's hard to make decisions. You know, our company definitely tries to rely more on data, uh, more on factual information. But we have learned over the last little bit that you can manipulate how you present that data, especially when you're looking at things without context. Um, you know, we're, we're talking about you know, a lot of things that we just don't have a lot of context for pandemics, et cetera. In the modern society, we have not seen a true pandemic to this scale uh, since 1968. Uh, you could call, I mean, the pandemic, the swine flu in 2009 was technically a pandemic, but it did not have the far reaching impacts. Uh, it was not engrossed in social media. We did not have the same societal concerns at that point in time. We were already in the midst of a recession uh, at that point in time. So again, we don't have a lot of information, uh, you know, with which to, to operate on at this point. You know, we're getting more. We only have a month and a half, though, really. I mean, in terms of a true, you know, modeling aspect, like where you have enough statistics that you can make real decisions with any accuracy. I mean, when these guys were first making these models in the early uh, phases, they had a week or two of information. And then, the, of course, they put the Chinese data on top of that how flawed was it? We don't really know just yet, but it obviously was flawed now, the further out we're going. <laughs> yeah. Um, that, that's, that's really what's creating a lot of gray area for us to operate in. So all we can do now is move forward and try to make the best decisions with the information provided. Um, I don't think I can say anything else to that extent. I mean, yeah, I think uh, you're exactly right on that. And it's difficult uh, when we're looking at this, especially when we're looking at economic data and everyone wants to know the latest, what's happening, when we're looking at restarting the economy, what's the state of the economy. It's very difficult when we're looking at data from March, although it does tell a story. Mm -hmm. It's old news already, yep. even though it's just a few weeks ago. Um, so that's why I think it's so imperative that we're looking at transportation as a whole, what's happening, what's being moved, um, where, what lanes are hot, what areas can we kind of corroborate with the economic data that we have to really kind of tell that full story at that near real time uh, data point set. So um, that's, that's why I think, you know, 
people and transportation are really going to shine at this moment and really kind of having a heads up as to what's happening in the economy, especially those in the trenches that are actually hauling this stuff. Um, yeah. Time. And thank you to all the truck drivers out there that continue to haul the freight uh, to the places that we need that freight in, especially the medical supplies and equipment and everything to that nature. Exposing yourself uh, to, p- to potential infection. Uh, kudos to you. Um, well done. Definitely, definitely. So let's break down this J.B. Hunt earnings. The For those of you that haven't guessed it, uh, the first real big earnings call was just announced yesterday. Uh, you know, Todd Maiden did a fantastic job on FreightWaves.com of uh, covering this in detail. Uh, he is our financial analyst, journalist, yeah. <laughs> extraordinaire that, that covers all the earnings. We are entering earnings season. And this, is, this to me, since I've been at FreightWaves, is probably one of the most, this will be one of the most fascinating earnings seasons, maybe only trumped by the July earnings calls that are going to occur this year. Yeah. Uh, uh, so so J.B. Hunt, Anthony, had what I think most people um, are, are considering a relatively positive earnings call. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that's, that is, it, it's, it's hard to say that when you see ORs, operating ratios declining right. uh, year over year. That's not necessarily what we consider positive, but we're considering the environment with which we are operating in, that is a pretty significant. Um, it's a pretty significant little move that that we're talking about things being. Well, they're not as bad as we expected. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, and I think when we're thinking of JB Hunt, um, and and some of the, uh, I guess larger carriers and, and larger players in the game, I think they're going to be able to weather the storm a lot better than some of the smaller regional or local carriers and, and players in the game. I mean, when we're looking at um, trucking, a lot of it's fragmented, small businesses. 93% right. of it, yeah. less than 20 trucks. Yeah. So, so when we're looking at small businesses, nationwide they're struggling. So we're looking within this re, re, um segment the sector of course they're going to be hit harder than some of the larger players yeah and obviously the the smaller carriers out there the smaller players out there are not big fans of the big the big carriers uh in in the market which is to be expected that's that's natural um because of the fact that they do have a little bit deeper pockets they yeah. can afford to take losses in areas that they may not be able to and they, they can influence rates and that's that's real, and that's the world we live in, and that's it's tough to swallow at times. But yes, that's uh, that's what what's happening. But again, JB Hunt has a brokerage, yeah, and they have a trucking sector, right? But the majority of their business is in intermodal and dedicated. Zach, seventy five percent of it. <laughs> what's dedicated? Yeah. So th- this is why this is why I find this. You know, these earnings calls to be so, uh, you know, interesting at this point in time. J.B. Hunt, again, everybody's going to think huge mega carrier, et cetera, $2.2 billion market cap, you know, just giant company. But 75% of that business Mm -hmm. is in intermodal and dedicated, which to my calculations in recent weeks looks to be at a big risk uh, moving forward, at least throughout the rest of 2020. uh, This market environment does not favor dedicated nor intermodal volumes. Um, You know, if you pay attention to any of our other stuff, uh, Mike Bodendistel talking about intermodal volumes just recently, 
uh, you know, since we started April, not a great look for intermodal volumes on the on the domestic side. So JB Hunt moves a lot of 53 footers, uh, which is the domestic container size that we typically look at 48 footers as well. Uh, domestic container size. If you look at some of these other containers, for those of you that have watched the rail, you'll see a bunch of 20 and 40 foot containers. The 20s are, are going to stand out to you, but 40 footers, of course, are these come from China. These are yeah. the ones that are coming across the ocean. Most of those containers are actually owned by the maritime shipping companies. Uh, J.B. Hunt does not necessarily deal with a lot of that. They are, they do, however, deal with a lot of the 53 and 40 footers. Yeah. Uh, and they put them on the rail. They have a partnership deal with BNSF. They split the revenue, uh, you know, a certain way and call it a day. And so when you're looking at J.B. Hunt's positive earnings, you really have to note that 75% of what you're looking at is on this dedicated and intermodal side. And I think what we're seeing here um, is kind of a trailing impact of where they were actually having. Because what, what happens with dedicated and intermodal is in flat markets, soft markets, these are fantastic modes of transportation. Yeah. Uh, freight spins, you know, they're, they're two of the cheaper ways to move your freight okay. uh, long distances uh, or and consistently. So if you have consistent volumes, Going a consistent and consistent lanes, intermodal and dedicated are exactly what you want. And from January to February this year, you couldn't have asked for a more perfect setup for this environment. Uh, so intermodal and dedicated. So intermodal revenue was 5.7% up this quarter versus last year. Loads were 6.7% up uh, Q1 over Q1. 2020 versus 2019. Uh, revenue per load, however, was 1.1% down. So intermodal, of course, is going to be dragged down by the trucking rates. Uh, as trucking rates soften, so does intermodal. They, they kind of pull, push and pull on each other. Intermodal becomes more, uh, it's a better option when trucking rates are going higher. It becomes less prevalent when trucking rates are going lower. But they're going to also have downward rate pressure. They're going to pull those intermodal rates down over time. Again, it's only 1.1% revenue down, so it's not a huge, huge amount down. But again, they have a relationship, and trucking is going to pull revenue down on that end. So that downward pull on the pricing aspect of intermodal dropped their OR to 91.1% versus 90.5%. That's significant. Which is a pretty big drop for a consistent uh, business model. Uh, I think Q2 will be far more interesting to look at <laughs> yeah. uh, as we see increasing downward rate pressure. I don't think we're going to see as significant downward rate pressure as many people are expecting in that environment, simply because they don't have to be that way. Uh, but it will bring that revenue or that profit margin down in all sectors across the board for sure. Right, right. I mean, as you said, this is the first big, big uh, release, right? So it's kind of like setting the tone is this going to be like the benchmark now i guess for other uh i mean inter intermodal's down about 10 percent, nine to ten percent year over year right now starting in this week so we didn't really feel the full brunt of that until just recently yeah um so again this is we have to take these this earnings especially on the intermodal side with a grain of salt that's not looking too good now intermodal uh does it's not dedicated per se. Now, dedicated business, as you asked the question earlier, uh, this is effectively like a shipper going into agreement saying, hey, I have five trucks a day that I need you to move 
you know, going from Dallas to Chicago every yeah. single day. And we're going to basically pay you to where you have five trucks a day for me sitting at my dock every single day. And it's going to move on the exact same schedule uh, going to Chicago. I don't care how you get those trucks here, but effectively we own them going in that route. Uh, you can get the return route included in that cost, depending on the destination. Chicago more than likely does not have a return route included in that cost, but somewhere like an Albuquerque may. Yeah. Uh, so dedicated is, again, consistent business. The, the, this actually has a less cost to the carrier because of the fact that it is so consistent and so guaranteed. This is truly what a contract is between a carrier and a shipper. Like this, this, most people think of contract rates like, well, if you have a truck in the area at this point in time and you can cover the freight at, you will cover it at this rate. That's what we call contracted freight. Mm -hmm. But the dedicated business is more about, is more what you would expect from when somebody says contracted freight. It's like, you guarantee me capacity, uh, and basically I'm going to use it or not use it. So even if, uh, the shippers don't have freight, they pay for that truck to go to Chicago that day, regardless. Gotcha. Whatever that rate would be. Sounds like the exact, like you said, the perfect setup for what you really want right now. So right. dispatch. First half yeah. Of the year. Yeah. yeah. And so dispatch does not have to worry about allocating that truck. They don't have to do as much work. Uh, they just know they need to have five trucks finaling around the area, you know, in Dallas every day or the day before. And as long as they can manage that balance, they'll know that that, that truck is paid for. Right. So that's half the battle right there. Right. Uh, dedicated revenue was up 10.2% year over year, Q1, Q1. Uh, tremendous number. Their OR went up to 86.5 from 89.8. That is a nasty trucking OR. Yeah. Especially on the dedicated side. Traditionally, uh, they have figured out a way operationally to make that work because traditionally they have lower revenues per load on the dedicated fleet side. And that's, that's part of the trade-off. That's why a shipper would do this is to get, you know, a lower cost on their, what they feel is like a very consistent pile of their business. Uh, the trade-off is, is that they were going to have guaranteed capacity. Right. So it's a pretty good model. And, uh, you know, JB Hunt does a pretty good job of managing that, uh, to an extent. So, Breaking out from the majority of their business, so trucking, how much do you think tr the actual for hire trucking non dedicated uh, aspect of their business is? I've already told you seventy five percent of it. It ain't seventy five percent. So I'm I'm gonna guess a little bit lower, a little bit. Um, this 55? is the for hire, huh? Fifty five. No, I've already said fifty. Well, you only got twenty five percent left that 50. you can use. <laughs> 15. <laughs> no, it's five. Okay. Five percent of their revenue is trucking, for hire trucking. Uh, and that revenue was up three percent in the month of March. Their loads, their load volume was up 14.8 percent. So they had a significant increase in volume, but only a three percent boost in revenue, which tells you what, Anthony? There are some margins. They compressed a lot of margins. Yeah. They were hauling stuff for less than they needed to haul it for, which again actually supports the theory in my mind that your deadhead percentages are going up. Mm -hmm. The deadhead percentages is obviously your non-revenue miles. So say a shipper is requesting a load coming out of New York, you know, and you've got to drive a hundred miles to go get to New York to pick up that load. Yeah. 
if you don't price that 100 miles into your rate, or maybe it's a contracted rate going from New York to Boston or New York to somewhere up in the Northeast, which is about the only direction it goes, right. uh, or to Chicago, something like that, but then you are going to drive 100 miles without any revenue on it, increasing your cost and therefore lowering your operating ratio, operating revenue. That's nuts. Yeah, it is. It is not. Uh, it's not great. So, with all this surge in freight volume, it's, it's basically what we've seen in a lot of our head haul indexes. Yeah, a lot of consumer points getting a lot of freight going in, with little freight coming out. Right. We've seen the Los Angeles market, for instance, drop from over a 100 head haul in- index value to under 20. <sighs> that means that they are seeing much less outbound freight in relation to inbound freight. That is a tremendous uh, change in dynamic from what we saw over the last 12 months. So, um, yeah, the trucking side did have some increase in volume. Mm-hmm. Their OR went from a 92.9% to a 98.3% with 260 less tractors in that business unit. So they reduced capacity in the four higher market. Yeah, A lot of those trucks went over to the dedicated side. Uh, and they still... I mean, their margins on the four hire trucking side just compressed. I mean, that I mean, that sounds like that's going to hurt somebody. <laughs> it's not great. No. Again, it's less bad than I think many were expecting. But again, this is only five percent of their business. Yeah. Um, but I think we can take this aspect of what we're seeing with JB Hunt now. Operating ratios, of course, are a measure of efficiency with how a, uh, how operate. How carrier operations are uh, being managed. Uh, the lower the operating ratio, the better. That means that for every dollar spent on moving freight for a four hire trucking carrier, they're getting uh, you know some percentage of that. So the ninety two point nine percent meant that they were getting seven point one seven dollars and ten cents for every dollar they spent to move that truck. Wow, that was last year. This year, they're only getting $1.70. <laughs> a significant difference there. Yeah. Now, this does not include debt or any kind of financial operations or any kind of securities or investments, uh, things like that. So this is pure operation. This is why we look at the ORs, the operating ratios. A lot of you pricing people out there will understand this pretty significantly. Uh, when you are pricing your freight, you'll look at the OR, the potential OR on a load. I used to more call it a margin of error in my world, but <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the lower the OR, the better. Um, just to put a little perspective on it, the rails typically operate around a 60 OR. <laughs> Much different than... Way different. And that's due to their <laughs> operational efficiencies. They yeah. have a lot more operational efficiencies, consistent volumes. It's A lot of the freight that they move is incremental. Trucking, not so much. We can get into that another day. Uh, but... Yeah, so let's and we may have done that in a previous podcast episode when we, <laughs> we were did doing a little bit educational series. We did a little bit. If you want to look back at the podcast episodes, we tried, we tried uh, yeah. to start a series where we would break down certain aspects of the freight uh, world and financial world and economic world to where you know you guys could actually look into some different sectors and see what was going on there for for experience. But you know, the Rona had a, had other ideas. Exactly. So. You know, Anthony, let's let's break down. I think this is probably one of the sec- the sectors of JB Hunt that most people are interested in, the brokerage yeah. sector. So this one is probably the most fascinating to me. Uh, brokerage, of course, is where you are looking at, 
you know, you're a middleman. You basically, you don't own assets, theoretically. Of course, right. J.B. Hunt does. So it's not a true brokerage in that regard. But they try to be as asset ignorant, <laughs> agnostic yeah. as possible uh, to make sure that their margins are as high as possible. But load volumes up 2.4% in brokerage. Again, consistent with what we found with our data, uh, revenue up 11.5%. Again, tremendous jump. Yeah. That's, that's actually a really good, uh, that's an interesting aspect right there. Revenue being up and load uh, volume being up does tend to coincide, uh, but their margins down. Yeah. <laughs> margins went to uh, roughly a 90, 90.4 OR, which okay. again, brokerage OR is not the same thing as a carrier OR. Yeah. Um, but they were around 83. So they had a 17-ish, 16, 17% margin this time last year. Now they have a 9 to 10% margin this year. So that, that kind of talks to one of the things you, you said earlier. It's, it's bad, <laughs> but it's like less bad, right, than expected. Yeah. I think a lot of people are thinking because you're – a lot of carriers out there, a lot of people out there are seeing less volume, less freight. That's yeah. not true throughout the entire market. Uh, depending on the sectors and the niches that you are involved in, JB Hunt obviously has a pretty wide, broad spectrum. Being one of the largest carriers in the com- in the country, uh, largest brokerages in the country, they do have a lot more exposure to a lot of different segments. Uh, so they probably are. This is one of the reasons that I love seeing the JB Hunt uh, earnings, is mm-hmm. because it gives me a lot of different pieces of the freight market itself. Uh, they are very diversified as a company right. in terms of transportation. So. Uh, yeah, their their brokerage volumes up, their margins are down. Now, this is this happens a lot of times uh, when the market is volatile for brokerages because they don't necessarily know how far or how fast you know the capacity is going to tighten or loosen. Yeah, with capacity literally taking an upside down V. <laughs> yeah, throughout March. We saw our outbound tender rejection index peak above 19% after starting about 5.3% to end February. Right. Tremendous amount of load uh, rejection <laughs> uh, change yeah. in a short period of time. Yeah. Now, all of a sudden, we're back to under 5%, yeah. below where we were in February. That, is, that volatility is so difficult to manage on a brokerage side, especially when you're talking about the fragmented nature of the industry and the environment that they're operating in. So... That that is not super shocking to me, and actually, I, it looks like they did a really good job yeah, <laughs> remaining yeah. profitable right. while that volatility was happening. Because what you see, if you're a broker, you go into work every day, and you have certain amount of volume that's coming in. You don't know really, you know, where it's coming from, what to expect. Certain amount of it is managed transportation. A certain amount of it is on the spot market, transactional stuff uh, that you get ad hoc day to day. The managed transportation side, all of a sudden, a lot of your carriers don't show up one day. A certain 5% don't show up today. Well, in the environment we were looking at, it could have been 1% wasn't showing up today. Now 10% isn't showing up today. Now you got to go out there and find carriers to cover your freight (laughs) for these shippers really fast. That is a tremendous delta. Uh, So you could literally be losing money immediately, like right away in that environment, which right. is exactly what we've seen. Um, but to that same 
effect, you're, you're talking about the spot market. So you think I was coming in and there's going to be $1,300 from Atlanta to Dallas yeah. the last two, three months. Very confident that right. I can get that rate. All of a sudden it goes up to $3,000. And you're, and you're guaranteeing the shippers that are calling in $1,500, $1,700 on those loads. Now you're, you've turned a four, a two to $400 win into a $1,300 loss. Right. It, and you, it is so hard to manage that type of volatility. Uh, you know, being on that, having been on the other end of that yeah. <laughs> equation, I have lost money uh, <laughs> before. Right. Uh, when it does flip like that, and when it flips, it flips on a dime. So for JB Hunt to show positive margin at all in this environment is is pretty impressive, in my opinion. I think so. I mean, uh, like I said, I don't know if this is going to be used as uh, the benchmark for the next earning calls or for other companies that that you know in the coming weeks and months here. But it's bad. It's not bad. But I think right now what we're seeing is like things are bad, but not as bad as they were. And JB Hunt is, I would say, thriving in a sense, even though we haven't seen other earnings yet, just yet. Yeah, and 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 I think the true story will show up for JB Hunt here in Q2 uh, mm-hmm. as the intermodal sector ebbs and and flows yeah. <laughs> as it's going to. Um, again, intermodal, not necessarily a huge uh, operating cost. For, for them, but it is an impact to revenue. Right. So that overall revenue is, is really what to watch here moving forward for JV Hunt. But again, there are other sectors. I, it is impressive, again, uh, to the detriment probably of some smaller carriers out there. But again, this is the nature of trucking in, in itself. Right. Uh, you know, you've got your larger players that can play this loss leader game. And, you know, that's why it's so difficult to manage. Yeah. Uh, you know, especially as capacity has well had grown significantly and that's another factor that we're going to watch here in the next few months is how much does this COVID outbreak along with the stimulus package impact supply side stuff here in q3 q4 i think we all know or anticipate a pretty rough q2 uh depending on the the quickness with what the, uh, the economy recovers which i still think is going to be largely negative it's going yeah. to take some time but q3 q4 recoveries could be uh, fairly volatile in themselves. Right, <laughs> right. Um, so, yeah, my takeaway from the JB Hunt earnings call is that we should expect pretty significant margin compression on brokerages. Yeah. Trucking, for sure. Uh, and it's going to be up to people to really work on their operating costs to make sure that's successful. Uh, but I will be curious to see what happens to that dedicated and intermodal here in Q2. Yeah. That's a that's a big one. Definitely. So we had CAS come out this mm-hmm. week. CAS, of course, is an uh, invoice billing company. A lot of people use their, in, you know, a lot of their indexes. They have shipment, uh, CAS freight shipment index, which measures volume. Uh, they have expenditures, which measures overall cost. Right. Um, they have intermodal pricing which measures the intermodal pricing. And then, of course, they measure the line haul index, which is the one that got the most headlines this week, uh, as they saw their most significant decline in line haul pricing index uh, since 2009. Is that an alarming headline to you? Not a lot was happening in 2009. Oh. By means of economic growth. 
but <laughs> <laughs> the key there, economic growth. We were obviously in a recession. Yeah. Uh, things were falling apart really rapidly. The 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 Cast Line Hall Index is uh, basically a representation of how much people are spending on base transportation costs, excluding fuel and accessorial charges. Fuel and accessorial charges, of course, are the things that uh, fuel is very volatile. Accessorial charges are things like inside delivery, residential delivery, you know, does it require lift gate, all these other little add-ons that can nickel and dime your rate up and down and have a tremendous impact on the cost of freight in general. You want to eliminate that as much as possible to get a clean number in terms of what you're looking at uh, on the actual transportation spend, transportation cost of the pure transportation aspect of that move. The line haul cost dropped 6.6% year over year in March. Wow. So everybody's wanting to, co- to blame Corona for this. I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. Not so fast, my friends. What's happening before? To quote Lee Corso. <laughs> <laughs> so in January of this year, we had our most significant drop year over year in the CAS index since 2009 at 6.3% mm-hmm. year over year. 6.3 and 6.6 ain't that far apart. No. <laughs> February, 6.1% year over year decline. Again, we were starting to kind of crawl back. Line haul costs are very dependent on contracted freight rates. These rates take a lot of time to go into place. What have we just seen at the end of 2019, but one of the softest freight markets, or at least retractions off of a high that we've ever seen? It may not have been a true retraction all the way under 2017, et cetera, but it came down from a nasty high in 2018. So we Mm -hmm. saw a lot of people claw back their transportation spend into the first part of 2020. Yeah. A lot of those bids go into play. They you, they send them out at the end of the year. They put them into place January. That's why you see a big retraction in freight uh, spend in this line haul index in January. It's because depending on that year, how soft or how hot it was, they're going to claw back some of those those values. So we saw a bigger drop in, in February, January, March, 6.6%. Yeah, it's a tremendous number year over year down, but it was actually slightly up yeah. sequentially versus February. Not a lot, mind you. It was less than a percent up uh, versus February, so don't get too excited. But a lot of that probably was propped up by the spot market spend, bringing a lot of those rates up, even though those contracted rates had fallen pretty, pretty tremendously. Right. Uh, so again, casts came out this week. Be sure to check those out. The you know the shipments, the volumes were down, but again, right in line with what we were seeing already this year. Not necessarily Corona impacted type numbers. We saw a small amount, maybe, but there's a little bit of balancing going on here. A lot of volume on the spot, less volume on the contract for a period of time. Again, the sectors that you're talking about are going to have an impact as well. Definitely. We have so Mike Vincent here saying rates would have been worse without the mad rush of freight in March due to panic buying. Yeah, absolutely. So insights for Mike. It's hard to uh, yeah, it's hard to tell just what that balance is. Yeah, uh, you know, a lot of those consumer products, food and beverage, kept those rates propped up. Automotive automotive movements pulled it all the way down. Right. You don't. You're just begging. I mean, we saw we were talking about it earlier. The flatbed tender rejection index. At an all-time low, almost 2% on the flatbed outbound tender rejection index. Of course, this is a willingness for carriers to accept their contracted freight. Yeah. Uh, so a 2% number, historical lows. We're normally looking at a very volatile figure on the flatbed tender rejection side because it is a much more volatile market. But again, flatbed 
very influenced by the industrial sector of the economy, Anthony Smith. Very much so. Very and, much so. And, you know, to that note, we had some industrial production numbers come out this week. Uh, we do. We had industrial production released. Um, this is one of, again, I think we mentioned earlier in the show, one of the first uh, significant releases for uh, the macroeconomy since the ramp up of COVID-19 coronavirus. Um, so what we saw in the latest numbers for industrial production, not too much of a surprise act, especially as we've watched um, the flatbed outbound tender rejection uh, numbers. Also, as we can speculate to what's been happening in the economy, just from observation, there was a decline here in uh, industrial production. Now, the drop was a 5.4% decline month to month, and this is the steepest decline uh, since 1946 for industrial production on a month to month basis. That feels bad. It's very bad. It's very bad. And the thing is, is we were just talking about that, that rush um, that we saw in 2017 and then in um, I'm sorry, 2018, and then that, that down in 2019, especially throughout the latter half of 2019, um, that the decline in a lot of freight also correlates with a lot of the, the decline in manufacturing. And when we look at industrial production, especially flatbed, um, there was a lot of contraction within the flatbed uh, arena. And when we looked at um, the latter half of 2019, we look at manufacturing and industrial production. There was a lot of decline there, where especially when we're looking at um, what was happening with China. When we're looking at trade trade war uncertainties. Seems like a much simpler time now, but the trade war uncertainties really started to pull back a lot of business investment. And now what we're seeing is that. That was already in a weak spot. Now it's getting even weaker now that we have uh, factories shuttering and closing down. And so what we're seeing in industrial production is that expectation of, okay, we're going to have probably have some more weak manufacturing numbers. After we just saw some subtle rise uh, earlier on in the year, I think February, we had a subtle rise from manufacturing. Um, but that's really showing that it's going to be one of the weak points for the economy, potentially one of the areas that might start up first when we're looking at manufacturing and construction if we get them a little push. But the big part is, is there going to be that business-to-business investment? Is there going to be, um, I'm sorry, that business-to-business activity or business investment that's going to really spur some of that manufacturing activity? For Of course, for those that aren't able to convert their operations to something that's deemed essential, like medical equipment production. Yeah, so <clears throat> industrial production, not great. No. Flatbed operators out there probably having a really bad ta- really bad day. Uh, again, also influenced by the oil prices, which again, if you have not tuned into John Kingston's Drilling Deep podcast yeah. uh, that he puts out every week, uh, that has become probably one of the most significant sectors to watch, in my opinion. Uh, even for those of you, I know most uh, carriers out there are looking at diesel prices just in terms of a flat cost. How do I budget it? But one of the things that me and John have talked about significantly over the last year or so is the impact of crude oil production in the United States to the industrial economy. And again, flatbed operators are no stranger to this. Uh, they're going to see ebbs and flows. Their capacity is going to increase as the oil wells start to shut down, which again, we are below $20 a barrel on WTI. Yeah. Uh, that is, that, that's simply too low for people to operate in the shale and start pulling oil out of that, out, out of the ground right there yeah. at that cost. That it doesn't make any sense. And Saudi Arabia hasn't had a, an influence here. They decided they're going to flood the market, oversupply it. You're going to see a lot more uh, oil sitting out there. Again, less people using distillates. 
demand is dropping uh, yeah. because they're not driving their cars, they're not doing all the things that they used to do. This is going to have a long-term impact on the oil industry and the market itself this year, even as the economy opens. Definitely. Oil production has become a significant part of our U.S. economy, so we definitely need to pay paying attention to that. So definitely stay tuned or tune in to the Drilling Deep podcast, which is really good. I mean, John Kingston spent uh, several decades in the uh, S&P Platts uh, global section covering the oil industry. I know we have market experts. He's almost like a market guru. He's It, it feels <laughs> he's a little under represented in that area yeah in my opinion yeah he's a wealth of knowledge but anybody anybody operating flatbed absolutely required listening this week drilling deep go back and listen to his previous several podcasts to get points of reference you do not have to be an expert in oil to listen to it but it is very important that you understand what's happening in the oil market if you operate flatbed i don't care if you operate construction industrial goods whatever as the oil market dies so does your specific segment yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Zach, we have another important segment that was released. I don't know if it's that important. Retail sales. Ah, no, nobody. Retail sales numbers got refreshed for March. What do we got? I'm, I'm guessing that they were, re- they were aggressively positive. Uh, that's for just some. What I, that's what I felt. For some. That's what I felt. For grocery stores. Okay. So you're, you're not wrong. <laughs> but overall, overall, there was a decline of, uh, 8.7% from February. And so this is... That sounds bad. Yeah. This is the steepest drop for retail sales since we started taking measures since in 1992, which seems kind of short. Of I feel like retail sales should be going back a little that bit further. It does feel pretty aggressively bad. But, in um, terms of- yeah. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, down 8.7% um, from February. And of course, in February... We had some already weak numbers. We already saw a decline in February, and that received a downward revision. It's now showing a month-to-month drop of negative 0.4%. So we have back-to-back numbers, uh, back-to-back months of decline for retail sales before um, any kind of corona ramp-up. Any kind of Rona ramp up, Um, but as you as I mentioned earlier, uh, grocery stores, um, food retailers up. 26.9% 26.9% on a month-to-month basis. And that's going to be a lot of that. It's going to, of course, be attributed to a lot of the panic buying that pull forward. <clears throat> I got to get my toilet paper. I got to get my paper towels. I have to get my eggs. I have to get my Lysol. I have to get my hand sanitizer. And I don't know what else were. I didn't do a lot of panic buying. I'm ill-prepared. Yeah, we went and panic bought one day. Okay, good. At the Dollar General. Yeah, we got toilet paper. Yep, I just Yeah, did. I wanted a four-pack that all they had was 12. The only reason I did is because I was like, I've got a house full of people right now. And it just got me. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, I can't have that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Reasonable. Yeah. Um, another area that I think we were all ex- expecting to be pretty significantly hit was the department segment. Uh, of course, clothing retailers. Your Macy's Belks. Mm-hmm. Anybody that's hauling anything for the, you know, limited. Does limited still exist? Limited brands? Um, I think they're as a... Like your structure, your structure pants. Eh. No? Eh. I don't know. Not on my alley. Express, express for men, sorry. Okay, express. There we go. There we go. Yeah. There we go. Now you're talking about <laughs> I right. get them confused. Okay. Okay, uh, boomer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I didn't want to say it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, when we're looking at uh, um, department stores, clothing retailers, Zach, the drop was 50.5% month to month when we're looking at those guys. And so... That, that is that's uh, that's that's catastrophic. Yeah, that's apocalyptic. Yeah, big time, big time. And so, 
um, that that talks to those large retailers that were already struggling to kind of keep their doors open um, before, you know, with the whole ramp up of e-commerce and really kind of struggling to keep up. Like you mentioned, Belk, Macy's, Sears, a lot of these outlets, JCPenney um, kind of had a rocky start and finish in here. So it's going to be really hard to kind of picture how they're even going to operate or even somewhat recover um, when we're looking at just their operations right now. They're not able to open up. So it's like either adapt to this e-commerce, non-store retail way of life or just fall by the wayside. It's really going to accelerate what we've kind of already seen coming over the last few years. Are we going to see a lot less brick and mortar at the end of this? I think so. I mean, this is this feels like really where we're headed. Yeah. A lot less stores, you know, a lot less people moving around. We're going to see this. I I think we've basically accelerated this e-commerce thing, which, again, puts Amazon in a beautiful spot (laughs) at the end of this, uh, even though my prime is worthless at this point. (laughs) Um, You'll get it when you get it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Which I think is a little scary. I think, you know, they're they're obviously going to be set up to come out at the end of this as a big winner. Yeah. Uh, some of these department stores and small businesses, of course, look to be the most exposed, which is not great for freight um, operations. You're going to have a lot less freight moving into these retail stores, even though I know a lot of this retail delivery stuff is not exactly what you want yeah. on your truck. Uh, they A lot of them don't have docks or they're in congested areas, et cetera. So it may be more efficient. You know, it's a lot more efficient to deliver to an Amazon DC, mm-hmm. but Amazon doesn't care about you, yeah. <laughs> you know, as, a, as a carrier. Yeah. I mean, they're trying to get their own stuff, uh, you know, where it needs to be yeah. on their own trucks. So, yeah. and, and speaking of Amazon, yeah. um, they're, they're going to be all right. Amazon, Walmart, Costco, Amazon, Walmart. Target. Everybody with this model set up already looks to be doing really well. Yeah, they're the going to be just fine. Especially because, and this is why I don't think, you know, I'm going to go into opinion here for a minute. Oh, boy. <laughs> I don't think we're going to see this V-shaped recovery. This this exact point that you're making right now, mm-hmm. the fact that we are going to see a lot of these companies go out of business. Mm-hmm. So restaurants, retail centers, et cetera, they just simply won't be able to survive, even with payroll protection plans and, and whatnot. It just won't make any sense because people, even at the end of this, are going to be less willing to get out and do this stuff, at least with a quickness. Yeah. It won't be immediate. I mean, you talk to anybody on the street, we have been pumped so full of this idea that Corona is going to get you. Right. <laughs> if you, if you even look at somebody, you're getting this disease. It's going to take a while for us to kind of move out of that. Now in 12 months, everybody may not even remember what coronavirus is. Yeah. But I think that here, obviously I'm exaggerating for effect there, but <laughs> I, I think that here, at least in the next several months, it is going to take a little bit of time for people to kind of come out of their shell about how do I get back to my day to day? How do I even approach somebody else anymore? How do I go to another building, mm-hmm. an environment where people are, you know, the introverts of the world are obviously like, I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> but Not a lot's changed. Uh, there's going to be a large portion, even on the extroverted side, that are kind of hesitant to reemerge. Yeah. And I think when we're looking at that, it's going to definitely come down to um, individuals that are at risk, right? So we're looking at um, aging populations, maybe those that have uh, a compromised immune system. They're going to be probably last to kind of venture out and, and really get out there. Um, of course, when we, even when we saw the, the ramp up of the coronavirus outbreak and uh, the U.S., we still had, you know, 
college kids, teens, adults, young adults were uh, going crazy on the beach. And you know, low Rona is not going to end oh. my good time. And oh, and, so, and to that point, the generational aspect, this is the first real economic downturn that millennials and Gen Zers have ever seen. Mm. Accurate? I mean, you're, you're in there. I mean, you've been a little bit more enlightened. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think millennials, they were in their adolescence when 0809 came yeah. around. And so they, I think they, they typically. But they for think sure, since you've been in the workforce. Of, oh, yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. And so I, I feel I feel bad for those uh, college students coming out uh, into the workforce now um, that might have some of the highest student loans <laughs> in history. And now you're trying to no, enter this workforce that is unprecedented. And it's so, bad. I came out in 2001. So mm-hmm. right after 9-11. Actually, the December of 2001. Yeah. Right after 9-11. So I, I feel you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I feel you 100% on that aspect. But at the same time, it made me better. Uh, tempered my expectations. It's, it's, it's not bad in the long run. It's terrible in the short run. Yeah. Move forward. Yeah. All right. So, you know, to that point, I don't think that a lot of your generation appreciates certain things. Such uh, as? Uh, such as cereal. I don't think that you guys really understand how, you know, the right brands of cereal to eat. All right. I see where this is going. And, you know, when was the last time that you got up and enjoyed a Frosted Flakes bowl that was Zach, just great? Zach, mm. I'm surprised. Mm-hmm. Frosted Flakes is my number one cereal. Wow. Did we just agree? <laughs> I'm surprised. Did we just agree? I didn't agree? want this to happen, but <laughs> yes, Frosted Flakes is my number one. Nobody denies Frosted Flakes. Yeah. I, I don't think I know anybody that has ever said, oh, I don't like Frosted Flakes. I don't trust them. Yeah. I don't trust them. Debate They're, over? Yeah, if they don't, then okay. <laughs> Emla, the intern, suggested, uh, I think it was pancakes, waffles, which one being better? Oh, pancakes. I, I wanted to veto that altogether and just go straight for uh, French toast, but in my hierarchy, it would go French toast, yep. pancakes, and waffles, but... All right. I mean, not a lot of debate here. No, no, not... I mean, obviously, you have common sense. I didn't realize you had so much. <laughs> Who would thunk? So your, your number... Your number, okay, let's go healthy cereal. I just named Raisin Bran. I'm going to go, you know, they come up with so many different Wheaties. Different, no, Wheaties oh. are awful. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Special K variances okay. have really got me. Mm. Dooner chimed in. Not true. Millennials were in 0809, at least the older ones. Millennials, has a, they have a wide age range. Oh, 82? Is it 82 is when it starts? I think 82 to like 1998 so, or yeah, something. So, yeah, they were. They were definitely out in 2008, 2009. Corre- corrected. I stand corrected, Dooner. Oh, we're well getting done. played out? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> but we are at the end of the show. <laughs> Wrap it up. Yeah. All right. All right, Zach. It's been real. Cool. We'll see you next week, guys. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for tuning in. Have a good week. Wash your hands. <laughs>